So this is London Philharmonic's performance of Handel's Messiah, and good grief is this an important piece of music. Um, you are likely to hear the Hallelujah Chorus, this particular section of the Messiah, in virtually any major church in the country if you walk into it on Easter Sunday. Um, this is one of every Christian's favorite musical pieces when it comes to celebrating sort of the glorious ascension uh, and, and realization of Christ. Uh, Messiah composed this entire enormous concerto. Uh, it's like two and a half hours long. Um, and it is just the entire story of the salvation of the world, the entire story of Jesus, starting from his his infancy and even his conception, all the way through his ascension and here his glorious, you know, realization of power and sort of on into the this examination of eternal life. Um, Handel borrowed liberally from the King James Bible from the Book of Common Prayer, from basically the entire Anglican religious tradition, um, and even beyond in some cases. And it's important to note that huge, big-scale, like, big-scope musical pieces like this are becoming more and more common in the 17th and 18th century. Um, you know, for all of the music that we've listened to so far, they're, they're fairly small-scale, Bach maybe being the exception, but even Contrapunctus is written for a fairly small group of instruments. Um, Handel, oh my gosh, all the stops are pulled out. Full symphony orchestra, full chorus. Like, it is meant to blow the roof off of whatever place it's being performed. And this is fairly typical of the period. You know, just as there's this sort of ostentatiousness in art throughout the Baroque and throughout the, the um, Enlightenment, you will see the same thing in music. You will see these big productions of huge numbers of, of instruments and huge numbers of musicians. Um, this is the age of the opera, where you know all of the performers and all of the orchestra work together to create this, this huge production. Um, increasingly, music, like all of the other arts, is a high-financed, high-energy you know, and high-cost endeavor. Um, and we'll see more and more of that as we go, as we move beyond the Baroque and the Enlightenment into the Romantic period, and we start seeing the huge, like, musical works of, of say, Beethoven or Wagner. Um, keep in mind that this is very much where that sort of emphasis starts. Um, all of that money is getting poured into music, just like all of the other arts. Uh, but enough of this. On to Milton! Oh boy, Milton's Paradise Lost. This is another one of my favorite texts from this class. Um, and it is one that I insist on teaching, even though frequently my students have troubles with it. Um, so I apologize in advance if you struggled. Um, but this lecture is going to be a little bit different. Like, it's going to look a lot the same as the other lectures we've had, especially the ones about Dante and Marlowe, where we're, like, digging deep into the text and picking out specific passages and sort of talking about how exactly it fits. Um, but I want you to listen to this lecture on a 
few different levels here because I'm going to be giving it on a few different levels. Um, I have a fairly strong reading of Milton. Like, I have strong opinions about it. I Those opinions aren't necessarily within the mainstream. Um, I have a fairly controversial opinion about Milton, and my interpretation is fairly controversial. Um, and I say this because oftentimes my students don't fully appreciate the business of making arguments about literature in academia. Um, frequently, like, even when I talk to my philosophy students, I'll tell them things like, hey, I want you to make a case for the existence of God and they will return to me and say but professor there's no evidence by which they mean there's no scientific evidence there's no facts there's no figures there's no dates there's no you know little morsels of data that they can work with to sort of make their argument um, the same is true anytime that you want to make an argument about a book so for example, during this lecture, I am going to make the argument that Milton is a loyalist. He supports the king and he supports the old aristocratic rule in England in the 17th century, which if you'll remember from the big PowerPoint lecture I gave was very much in question in the 17th century. Milton is writing his Paradise Lost at the same time as all that crazy shit is going down with Charles I being warred against by parliament and the Trump Parliament ultimately choosing to execute Charles I, and then Cromwell and company coming in and like taking over the place. I suspect that Milton is writing Paradise Lost with this all in mind and making the case that the king is the right God-given just power and that all of the people who are upset about it all of the you know popular disagreement all the revolution is just a bunch of upstarts ultimately fighting against good people um, or at least the power structure that God put in place that's how I read this book and not everybody agrees with me and I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit in the lecture today um, but what I want you to notice is that that is what we are doing in this class, more often than not. Uh, the whole business of studying humanities, like as much as it is, you know, learning and coming to read all of these great works and understanding, you know, what makes them so great, another huge part of it is learning to look at it in different ways, making these arguments about how these texts, how these works of art, how these, you know, architectural characteristics all are informed by the historical situation and go on to talk about the historical situation. When I say that I'm making an argument, I'm saying that I'm going to be pulling out evidence from this text to show how Milton is trying to make his own case. I will be making a case about the case that Milton is making. And I know that this is like, you know, four levels of meta text and we might as well be doing inception at this point. Um, but keep this in mind. At the end of the day, I am going to be presenting this lecture on three levels. On the first level, it's just a normal, regular lecture. I want to talk about Milton. I want to talk about how he fits into the Faust tradition. I want to talk about how he portrays evil the same way that Dante portrays evil, the same way that Mil Marlowe portrays evil, and how that contributes to the way that Europe and England especially understand evil at this moment in history, compared and contrasted with all the moments in history that we'll talk about before and in the future. Um, but I also want to make this specific argument that Milton is a loyalist, that Milton supports the king against the parliamentary upstarts, that he is an anti-revolutionary, that he disagrees with Locke and Hobbes and their ideas about popular sovereignty and ultimately wants things to stay the way they were. He is, at the end of the day, a conservative. 
um, in the old school sense. But I also want this argument that I am presenting to be an example to you. Like, I am going to basically be doing the same thing that I want you to do in the research paper and in the other major writing assignments, starting with the response paper due after we talk about Don Juan in the next couple of lectures. Um, so I want you to think about not just the stuff I'm talking about, but also how I'm talking about it, how I am making my case, why I pick the examples that I do, why I specifically bring up certain elements of the text to support my opinion that Milton is a loyalist and at the end of the day he is in support of the king and of God um, and how he's using this text to explain that. So again, I realize that I'm asking you to do some pretty impressive four-dimensional chess here as far as like listening to the lecture and taking notes and sort of at the same time recognizing, you know, how it is that one makes an argument about a work of art like this. Um, but keep this in mind as you go forward. Like, even if you can't keep all this going simultaneously, don't worry about it. But think about this later when it comes time to start writing research papers. And I say, you know, I want you to like locate the, the priorities of the artist in its cultural time period. That's what I'm doing with Milton right here, right now. Um, cool, copacetic, makes sense, hopefully. If not, absolutely ask me questions about it. Um, like, I find that this is the hardest thing to get across to students because it is kind of super abstract and it's often something that your high school teachers have kind of neglected or ignored because they've got enough to worry about for other things that they need to do. Um, so, you know, just let me know, email me, talk to me about it, by all means, like I wanna sort this out as much as possible. Um, so without any further ado, let's dive into Milton. Um, and the first thing I wanna point out about Milton is, shocker, the very beginning, again. Um, the introduction here is justly famous and extremely pointed in the way that Milton talks about it. Um, especially in the light of everything that we've talked about with Dante and Marlowe and how they sort of are negotiating these sort of pagan priorities. You know, we really love Homer and we really love Socrates and we really love Plato, but we also are Christians and know that they are all heathens and therefore we can't love them too much. Notice how Milton takes a side on this. So let's look at that opening passage. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing, heavenly muse. Notice that here Milton is absolutely aping Homer, Virgil, and all the great epic poems of the classical period. Like Homer, he is starting with the big concept of man's first disobedience. While we didn't read the whole of Milton's Paradise Lost, we only read book one, the whole book is devoted to a retelling of the story of the Garden of Eden. It's about Adam, and it's about Eve, and it's about being tempted by the serpent, and ultimately falling from grace. It's about how this radically changes the world and appears to change God's designs. And notice how Milton describes all that here. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, sing heavenly muse but notice also that already milton is bringing in the christian salvation message 
Um, despite the Forbidden Tree, despite the mortal taste that brought death into the world, despite the loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, that's a direct reference to Jesus. And he will absolutely be a major character in this text overall, although not here in book one. Um, and notice, too, that Milton is using the Homeric formula to introduce this. Here is the topic, the fall from grace, the, you know, leaving the Garden of Eden and Jesus coming to save us instead. Sing of that heavenly muse. Like in Homer, when you read the Iliad, you will find the, uh, Homer's invocation of the muse is sing of rage muse. The central theme of that text is rage. He wants to talk about Achilles' rage and the rage that brought Greece and Troy to war and the rage that springs out of that. Um, he wants to talk the, about the rage of grief and the rage of hurt pride and the rage of defending one's homeland. All of those things are what Homer wants to talk about. And so he says, sing rage heavenly muse, or rather sing rage muse. But notice that Milton does change it. It's not just sing muse, it's sing heavenly muse. And notice that he goes on to describe this muse. Like, we're not done with the first sentence yet. Um, of man's first disobedience, etc., etc., sing heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Here he's saying, you are the muse that inspired Moses. Moses is the one who stood on Mount Sinai and received the books of the law from God. He is the one who, according to tradition, wrote the first five books of the Bible, um, the Pentateuch or the Torah as the Jews have it. Moses supposedly wrote Genesis, which is the original story of the Garden of Eden and the original story of Adam and Eve, as well as being the original story of like Abraham and Joseph and a bunch of other people. So not so Milton is not just invoking any muse here, he is invoking the Holy Spirit, the same muse that inspired Moses to write this story centuries and even millennia ago at this point. Milton is saying, I want that muse to reach to me. And he goes on to describe the other accomplishments of the muse. Or if Zion Hill delight thee more in Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song. So not only is this the muse that inspired Moses to write the story of Genesis in the first place, this is also the muse that inspired all of the great prophets in Jerusalem, that inspired all of the Palestinian figures who ended up writing the later chapters of the Bible. Isaiah and Jeremiah, these are all figures that, you know, hung out in Jerusalem by Zion's hill, by the brook that flowed by the oracle of God. He is saying, I invoke the, the Holy Spirit, because in Christian tradition, it is the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that like indwells all Christians, that also informed and inspired all of the Old Testament prophets. So note that Milton is not pointing to the Homeric muse, Calliope, the muse of epic poetry, but rather pointing to this divine muse, the heavenly muse, the Holy Spirit itself. Um, and note that he ex makes this comparison between the two kinds of muses explicit. Um, again, we haven't hit a, a period yet. Um, of man's first disobedience, sing heavenly muse. Muse who sang at Sinai, muse who sang at Zion's hill. 
Um, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Here, as opposed to making reference to all of the, you know, religious iconography, Moses and Sinai, Zion's hill and the prophets who, who dwelt in Jerusalem, now instead he's pointing to pagan myths. This middle flight is a direct reference to the flight of Icarus. According to the tradition, Daedalus told Icarus, you know, he gave Icarus wings and he said, hey, Icarus, here are these fancy wax wings. With them, we will be able to escape from Minos's tower and you can fly across the sea to safety. But make sure you use the middle flight. If you fly too low, your wings will mix with the spume kicked up off the sea and it'll become heavy and force you down into the water where you'll drown and if you fly too high you'll get too close to the sun and it'll burn your wings and then the, the wax will melt the wings will come apart and you'll plummet into the sea and drown and that's what happens to icarus daedalus is saying you know be careful don't fly too high and icarus is like i'm a teenager i can do whatever i want i don't care and he flies so high that the wax wings melt and he dies Notice Milton is saying, I intend to fly too high. With no middle flight, I intend to soar above the Aeonian Mount, the Mount of Olympus, where the gods of ancient Greece dwell. Milton is saying, I am adopting the epic style here. I invoke the muse, I use Homeric imagery, I use epic poetry format and, and uh, like rhythm scheme but i am telling a story so much greater than anything the old pagan writers ever told i am flying above all of mount olympus and all of the stories of the gods i refuse to accept the limitations of icarus and instead because i'm invoking a greater muse i intend to have a greater flight because my story is far greater because it is true and once again we haven't hit a period yet. The period we finally reach is about this middle flight that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian Mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. Milton is saying, I am taking on this incredibly aggressive, this incredibly ambitious project. And I need more than just the Greek muses. I need the Holy Spirit itself. But because I have the Holy Spirit itself, I am empowered to sail beyond all the limitations of Homer and Virgil and all of the great pagan poets and all of the great pagan myths. I am doing something better and I have better equipment to do it with is what he's saying. So after this period, we finally get, and chiefly thou, O spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest. Thou from the first wast present, and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like satst brooding on the vast abyss, and madest it pregnant. What in me is dark illumine, what is low, raise and support, that to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence, and justify the ways of God to men. Milton is saying here, he is basically invoking a muse, but he is also making a prayer, a Christian prayer. He is saying, God, 
Help me explain your mysteries. Send me your muse, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate the dark things about this world that we do not understand. He he invokes not Calliope, not some, you know, lesser god, but God himself here. And by this logic, he is drawing the same contrast we discussed before between Christianity and paganism on the one side, but on where Dante was doing this, Dante was synthesizing them. Dante was saying, we can still admire the pagans because even though they do dwell in hell, they have the light of reason. God has had mercy on them for their virtue, even if they weren't Christians, even if they can't qualify to get into heaven, even if they are at the end of the day hopeless, they remain untormented. There is a separate secondary middle place that the great pagan virtuous philosophers and heroes can dwell in. Milton is drawing the opposite conclusion. Milton is saying that he wants to leave the pagans behind. He will use Homeric form, but he will use it to tell a Christian story. And because it is a Christian story, he intends to go far beyond what any other pagan writer has done. And we will notice a lot of these pagan characteristics, a lot of these epic poem characteristics. He's going to frequently use Homeric metaphors. He's going to frequently use elevated language. He's going to frequently use Homeric images. Like the whole counting of the armies of hell is basically just ripped off from the Iliad chapter two, when the great mustering of the armies of Greece are all brought together and Agamemnon is like going around counting them all. Uh, Milton is going to frequently use this imagery, but again, note, he's aspiring to something higher than that. In his opinion, he's left Homer behind. And we'll see how that plays out later on in the text. But let's move forward. Um, after this invocation of the muses, after all of this, you know, praying to God for the ability to, you know, write well this story, um, he goes on to describe the fall of the fall from heaven of Satan and his crew. This is where the story starts for us. Um, if you're not familiar with it, this is a pretty good description of it here that he presents to us. Um, according to the tradition, and this is like extra biblical literature, like some of it is hanging around in Revelation and some of the Christian texts, um, as well as the Apocrypha. But for the most part, this comes from like not the Old Testament, but other stuff entirely. According to the tradition, Satan rebelled against God. Like Satan used to be an angel once upon a time. In fact, he was the greatest of the angels. He was the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most beloved of the angels. But Satan turned against God. Satan rebelled and tried to take over heaven along with an army of angels that he had sort of brought around to his cause. And because they were fighting God, God didn't tolerate this crap, and he basically snapped his fingers and winked them into hell. Like, utter destruction, utter defeat, complete annihilation of the forces of hell, except that they're not destroyed, they're not killed, they're just doomed, damned, imprisoned in hell, where they will pres like continue to be for eternity, but continue to be in torment and horror. Um, so... As Milton writes it here, um, the infernal serpent he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge deceived the mother of mankind what time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers he trusted to have equaled the most high. 
Satan rebelled against God. He thought he could overpower him. He was very wrong. With vain attempt, him the almighty power hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky. With hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. It went poorly. Um, Satan raised his impious war vainly. The almighty power hurled him and all of his army headlong from the ethereal heaven to ruin, combustion, perdition. Damnation, in short. Um, so we find Satan here. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men, nine days after he is originally cast from heaven, he, Satan, with his horrid crew, lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf confounded, though immortal, but his doom reserved him to more wrath. For now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay, mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. At once, as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation waste and wild. So it's nine days after Satan's been chucked out of heaven, he is now sitting in hell and waking up for the first time is observing what has happened to him, the circumstances and how they have changed. And note the description that Milton uses here when Satan is looking around at hell, seeing it for the first time. The dismal situation waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round as one great furnace flamed. So it's like it's all on fire all of the time. Yet from those flames, no light, but rather darkness visible. The flames are like this visible darkness, this sort of positive darkness that clouds the senses. Um, they are not flames that give light, they are flames that give dark. Served only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades where peace and rest can never dwell. Hope never comes that comes to all, but torture without end still urges and a fiery deluge fed with ever-burning sulfur unconsumed. This is hell for Milton. It is fiery, it is burning, it is a torment every moment that you're there. It is a fire that is dark, it is a torment that is unending, it is a place without hope. Just like we talked about in Milton, though perhaps made even more evocative, because notice Milton's emphasis here. Such place eternal justice had prepared for those rebellious. Here their prison ordained in utter darkness and their portion set, as far removed from God and light of heaven as from the center thrice to the utmost pole. Satan and his company are three times as far from heaven as there is from the center to, like, the north pole of the earth. Um... And what is emphasized here is this is the place that God prepared for rebels. This is what Milton emphasizes about Satan, that they are rebels, that there was an established order. Satan and his angels fought against it, and they are doomed to hell for this rebelliousness. This is the first way that it is pretty obvious that Milton is arguing that the rebels of England in the 17th century are the ones that are meant to be damned. He is drawing a clear connection between the rebellion of the 17th century English world and the rebellion of Satan and their just punishment in hell.
This is a significant parallel that Milton draws that emphasizes the similarity between the rebels in the rebel angels who fell from heaven and the rebel humans who ultimately are fighting against the established order in Milton's own time. This connection that he draws implies that these people deserve damnation. Not just the angels who rebelled against God, but also the rebels who fought against God's representative, the king. They are connected. The similarity is pretty difficult to miss here. Now, I should stress that most of the people who read Milton, who most of the people who interpret this text, see Milton as actually doing some fairly groundbreaking work in representing Satan as sympathetic, as making Satan out to be perhaps even an anti-hero. Many people claim that Satan is actually a really powerful figure here. He is a protagonist, if anything. And the Paradise Lost is told from the perspective of Satan as from the perspective of, like, Achilles or Odysseus. Um, they specifically love that line, which most of my students can really pick out and, and pick up on. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, Satan ultimately says. Um, and we identify with that. We humans see that, yeah, this is an underdog story. This is Satan, the underdog, fighting against God, the established power. Um, his will to keep on fighting is admirable, and we should admire that. We should recognize a sort of humanness about that and see that in our own character. But I tend to think that the people who interpret this text in this way are failing to see that Milton is, at the end of the day, condemning Satan for this, not actually raising him up as a role model. So let's look at how we work our way to that line, that bit about, you know, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. At this point, we have gotten our invocation out of the way. Milton has given us this description of hell. Satan is like waking up for the first time, looking around, realizing how awful it is. And then we're told that he is hanging out next to Beelzebub, one of the, you know, other major devils in popular literature related to Christianity at the time. Beelzebub is the famous Lord of Flies. Um, and Satan wakes up next to Beelzebub and they start talking. Um, his redder to reign in hell line is actually at the end of his conversation with Beelzebub. Um, so here let's start around line 84. If thou beest he, Satan says, but oh, how fallen, how changed from him who in the happy realms of light, clothed with transcendent brightness, did outshine myriads, though bright. Um, he is looking at Beelzebub and saying, dude, what happened to you? You look miserable. You used to be so awesome and now you are wrecked. If he whom mutual league, united thoughts and counsels, equal hope and hazard in the glorious enterprise, joined with me once, now misery hath joined in equal ruin. He says, dude, you were my ally up in heaven, now you are my ally in hell. Let's work together. Um, Into what pit thou seest from what height fallen, so much the stronger proved he with his thunder. Until then, who knew the force of those dire arms? Satan says, you know, we were, we thought we had a really good chance against God. Who knew that he was as powerful as all that? Who knew the force of those dire arms? Yet not for those, Satan says, nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict. Do I repent or change? Satan remains steadfast. Yeah, we got our butts kicked, but I am still focused. I am still going to raise us up and we are going to fight back and we are going to take our territory. This is just a setback. It's okay. We're going to we're going to come back from this. We didn't know how powerful he is. Now we do. 
Um, Though changed in outward luster, that fixed mind and high disdain from sense of injured merit, that with the mightiest raised me to contend, and to the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed that durst dislike his reign, and me preferring his utmost power, with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven, and shook his throne. We almost did it, he's saying. We got so close. If we had only not underestimated his power, we totally could have done it. And so he still preserves some kind of hope. What though the field be lost, he says. All is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield. And what is else not to be overcome? That glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me. I still have my rage, Satan says. I still have my will. It is not conquered. I am alive, and therefore I will use every fiber, every ounce of my being to fight back against God, to ultimately overtake his world of heaven, and to reestablish ourselves the way we ought to have been. That glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me. He can't break my will, in short. Satan is saying, yeah, he can beat the crap out of me. He can beat the crap out of all of us. I will still never stop fighting him. To bow and sue for grace with suppliant knee and deify his power who from the terror of this arm so late doubted his empire, that were low indeed. That were an ignominy and shame beneath this downfall, since by fate the strength of gods in this imperial substance cannot fail. Since, through experience of this great event, and arms not worse, and foresight much advanced, we may with more successful hope resolve to wage by force or guile eternal war irreconcilable to our grand foe, who now triumphs and in the excess of joy, soul reigning, holds the tyranny of heaven. Notice the rhetoric here. Satan describes God as a tyrant. Satan describes God as hiding his power until they were forced to meet it. And notice now that Satan holds out hope. Yes, it was shame that we got beaten. Yes, it was ignominious that we were, you know, kicked from his power. But it was worse to obey him. It was worse to be his slaves. And what's more, now that we know what God is capable of, now we know how powerful he can be, we are better equipped to beat him. We are stronger now than we were before. God hasn't destroyed our power. God hasn't, like, killed us. Instead, we're just as powerful as we were before, and now we also know what God can do. Now, Satan's already planning, you know, the second counteroffensive. Beelzebub, on the other hand, has a different idea. Um... O prince, O chief of many throned powers, Beelzebub responds, that led the embattled seraphim to war under thy conduct, and in dreadful deeds fearless, endangered heaven's perpetual king. Notice how Beelzebub is flattering, like, oh yeah, you put God in danger, even though he's going to question this in a moment, and put to proof his high supremacy, whether upheld by strength or chance or fate, too well I see and rue the dire event that with sad overthrow and foul defeat hath lost us heaven, and all this mighty host and horrible destruction laid thus low as far as gods and heavenly essences can perish. Yeah, we thought we had a good chance. We put God to proof. Whatever it was that beat us, were beaten. I rue the fact that we were defeated, that we were in horrible destruction laid low. But he also acknowledges that the reason why they aren't dead is because God is somehow like not powerful enough to kill them, but because they were designed immortal. In horrible destruction laid thus low as far as gods and heavenly essences can perish. They were thoroughly beaten, Beelzebub points out. 
And what's more, the only reason they're not dead is because they can't die. Like, he doesn't actually concede as Satan does that it's just a matter of time before they, you know, come back and win. For the mind and spirit remains invincible and vigor soon returns through all our glory extinct and happy state here swallowed up in endless mis misery. But what if he our conqueror, Beelzebub asks, whom I now of force believe almighty, since no less than such could have overpowered such force as ours, what if that conqueror is all-powerful, he's saying. That's what the parenthetical is. Whom I now of force believe almighty. He must be all-powerful. How else could he have beaten us as powerful as we were? What if he, our conqueror, Beelzebub asks, has left us this, our spirit and strength entire, strongly to suffer and support our pains, that we must so suffice his vengeful ire, or do him mightier service as his thralls by right of war, whate'er his business be, here in the heart of hell, to work in fire, or do his errands in the gloomy deep? Beelzebub is asking a different question. Satan is triumphing. He's like, dude, we are alive. We can fight back. I still have my force of arms. We still have our army. Everybody is just as strong as they used to be. And we're smarter for it because now we know what God is capable of. And what's more, until he destroys my unconquerable will, which he cannot destroy, I will spit my hate right back in his face and he will never be able to break me to his will. I would rather die than suffer, you know, the ignominy of like licking his boots a moment moment longer Beelzebub responds what if we're alive because he wants us to be alive what if our conqueror what if God who beat us left us our strength left us our spirit not so we could like you know because he couldn't extinguish it not because you know we can't help but live but instead specifically so we can suffer his vengeful ire we can suffer the punishment of living rather than dying and what more do him service as thralls be his slaves in short like god beat us it is therefore god's will to you know make us do whatever he wants this is the right of the conqueror over the conquered like this is, you know, Egypt conquering a nation, taking them as slaves and making them build the pyramids. This is the Greeks conquering an island, taking them in, uh, for tribute and forcing them to tax your, your kingdom. This is the Roman Empire doing the same thing, installing a government in place and forcing the, the citizens they've conquered to bring their money to Caesar. What if we're meant to serve, Beelzebub asks. Um... What can it then avail, though yet we feel strength undiminished or eternal being to undergo eternal punishment? What is the point of fighting back, he's asking. We were beaten. God beat us. Now we're his slaves. Now we're stuck here, eternally punished. What is the point of fighting at this point? And Satan responds, Fallen cherub to be weak is miserable, doing or suffering, but if this be sure, to do aught good never will be our task, but ever to do ill our soul delight. Satan says, hey, I don't know what your deal is. I don't know what you're saying about like God possibly turning bad things into good. My job is always going to be to do evil. Like, I'm just, like, I am refuse to bow to God's will. I will always do evil. As being the contrary to his high will whom we resist, just out of spite, Satan says, because he is my, you know, tyrant, I refuse to acknowledge, and whenever God says left, I'm going to go right, just because he's God and I hate him. 
Um, if then his providence out of our evil seek to bring forth good, our labor must be to pervert that end and out of good still to find means of evil, which oftimes may succeed so as perhaps shall grieve him if I fail not and disturb his inmost counsels from their destined aim. See, what you have to understand is that from the Christian worldview, like we talked about with Dante, their understanding is that evil is not a positive thing. It's a negative thing, like we said. Um, evil is doing what God doesn't want you to do. It's going away from God. Not a Jedi Sith, like each one is equally powerful. God and Satan are like just waiting to fight in the ultimate bout. No, here it is presented in most Christian teaching. God is always going to win. And the reason why he keeps Satan around is not because he can't beat him. It's because Satan's evil ultimately redounds to God's greater goodness. This is what the medievals taught, especially Thomas Aquinas. This is what most Protestants absolutely hold on to as far as it is from the Catholic teaching in this frame. The way that they understand it is Satan does evil, but that evil is always redounding to greater good. God turns it to greater good. So Satan's response here, well, it doesn't matter because I'm always going to try to do evil. And if he's going to try and make good out of evil, well, I'm going to try to make evil out of good. There's something petulant about it here. Um, it, he's desperate in his justification here, which oftentimes may succeed so as perhaps shall grieve him if I fail not. Like maybe at the least I can frustrate him a little bit. Maybe I can make him upset a little bit. Maybe I can make him uncomfortable about it. At the very least, I will disturb his counsels. I will make him feel uncomfortable in short. Um, Satan is saying, yeah, maybe that's true. I refuse to give up. I refuse to let God win i refuse to bow down lick his boots to play the game his way if he's gonna you know use me as his slave well i'm gonna try and unuse me as his slave and it doesn't necessarily make sense and notice that milton buttresses this in the next long descriptive passage um so after they're done talking like satan stands up trying to figure out what is going on and there's this big epic metaphor of satan like the leviathan from job um and it says um so stretched out huge in length the arch fiend lay chained on the burned lake or on the burning lake nor ever thence had risen or heaved his head but that the will and high permission of all ruling heaven left him at large to his own dark designs that with reiterated crimes he might heap on himself damnation while he sought evil to others and enraged might see how all his malice served but to bring forth infinite goodness grace and mercy shown on man by him seduced but on himself treble confusion wrath and vengeance poured our narrator, Milton himself, offers this passage to show Satan as a foolish individual, as hopeless, that all of his efforts, even the fact that he can just lift his head out of the muck of hell, is done by God's permission only. Nor ever thence had risen or heaved his head, but that the will and high permission of all ruling heaven left him at large to his own dark designs. Milton is on Beelzebub's side. Beelzebub is right here. Satan can't fight back against God. God is so powerful that everything Satan does is a part of what God wants to happen. Um... And Milton explains why. On the one hand, it's so Satan can heap on himself damnation. 
treble his crimes, make himself even more damned with every passing day, while at the same time all of his evil efforts by which he's seducing man in fact serves to bring forth goodness, grace, and mercy. Through Jesus' salvation, through the resurrection, God is making an even better story than would have been possible if Satan hadn't existed. If the evil that Satan had caused, if the fall from grace of Paradise Lost hadn't happened, it would make an even worse story than, if, than this one where Jesus ultimately comes to save the day. So when Satan ultimately says, like his big line, his big famous, you know, uh, better to rule and reign in hell and serve in heaven. It's after this passage. Like, after Beelzebub has cautioned him, what if God just left us alive to do his work? After Milton has told us, yes, God specifically left Satan alive to do his work. After Satan has said, you know, I refuse to, to lick God's boots. I will always try and do evil in the hopes that, like, I can unnerve God's, God's counsels. Um... When Satan is saying here at the end of his speech before this passage, um, we need to like get our troops together. We need to consult how we may henceforth most offend our enemy, our own loss, how repair, how overcome this dire calamity, what reinforcement we may gain from hope, and if not, what resolution from despair. Like Satan is saying, even if we are despairing, we have to use that despair to fuel our efforts to frustrate God, as impossible as it might be. Um, and finally, after all this description, after Satan is looking around, seeing exactly how badly off their army is, um, his response is not, oh my gosh, we are screwed, which is the smart thing. This is what Beelzebub is acknowledging. Instead, he says, this is line 243, is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light? Satan has a doubt here for a moment. Oh, wow, this is a crappy shithole, he's saying. This place is rotten. Be it so, he says, resolved. Since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best, whom reason hath equaled, forth force hath made supreme above his equals. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Goodbye, heaven, where I was happy, where there was joy. Hail, horrors, hail, Satan says, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Satan says, my mind is still mine. Remember, my will is unconquerable, he said. God left my will intact, and I determined to make a hell of heaven a heaven of hell. I will find joy in this place. I will make it so. I will despise the joy and happiness I experienced in heaven, and instead I will embrace the horrors. Hail, horrors, hail. Here at least we shall be free, Satan says. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. He's arguing it's 
good that we reign here because nobody wants it. This is a shithole. God's not going to kick us out of here because who else would be here? Nobody wants hell. So we can reign here comfortably. We can reign in this dump, this shithole, this worthless place because nobody wants it, because nobody will envy it of us. So, again, while this passage is frequently debated amongst scholars, I think it is clear that Satan is being presented as relentlessly evil, incurably evil. And Milton emphasizes that all of that evil is still within God's plan. He is still serving God. The fact that Satan is saying, I am not a servant, is itself self-deception. Satan is refusing to acknowledge that he is still God's thrall, as Beelzebub put it, even though Milton is willing to emphasize it. Notice how different this is from the Satan of Dante, though. Like, for Dante, Satan is well aware of his situation. He sits in hell gnawing the bodies of the traitors. He weeps, and he, like, bleeds, and pus seeps from his wounds. He is very well aware. The whole point in Dante's Inferno is that all of these souls are in hell because they are removed from heaven. Remember, Marlowe said the same thing. Mephistopheles, every time that he goes someplace, every time that Faustus asks him, what is hell? Mephistopheles' answer is, wherever I am, because I will never be able to go back to heaven. Hopelessness is hell for both of those writers. Now, here in Milton, it's the same truth. It's just that Satan is too blind to see it. Satan is blinded by his rage, blinded by his pride, blinded by his lust for power, blinded by his own ambition, blinded willfully. Like he says, I will like steal my mind to fail to see how horrible this is. I will make a hell of heaven. I will make a heaven of hell. Satan is willfully deceiving himself satan is willfully willing himself to lie to himself this is the satan that milton is depicting here the only way that satan can keep doing evil is because he is so blinded by his rage and his spite and his just petty anger that he will transform himself in his own mind into a conqueror he will basically brainwash himself into continually fighting against God. And he will have the same effect on his troops as well. Now, the next passage I'm not going to go over in great detail. Like, I've already read, you know, like three quarters of everything we've gotten to at this point. Um, the next passage is very long, and there's a lot going on in there, but it's not nearly as dense with sort of Satan's perspective and how Milton is portraying Satan. Um, and as much as we, are ten we tend to sort of see Satan as sympathetic, I really don't think that's what Milton is doing here. Satan is deluded. Um, now, admittedly, the reason why we make that mistake is because we lack Christian faith. Like, we generally don't have that faith that, like, everything is redounding to God's plan and that underdogs should be allowed to win. We see the image of Satan in tyrants. Our point of reference isn't God, it's Hitler. Like, we're seeing Satan as opposed to, you know, as, like, the revolutionary fighting against an unjust dictator, not Satan as, you know, the needlessly combative, needlessly spiteful opponent to a just power structure. Today, we are very suspicious of all power structures. 
Um, we would reject God the way that Dostoevsky's, you know, underground man rejects God. Like, I refuse just for the sake of refusing. And we look at that and we say, yeah, that's human. That tracks. Milton is saying that's inhuman. That doesn't track. That is self-deception. That is delusion. And honestly, Dostoevsky is saying the same thing if you bother to read The Underground Man in context. Um, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, now, the next passage, this listing, has a lot in common with what Homer is doing, and it is full of Homeric metaphors. Um, so first off, just the very structure of it is Homeric. You have Satan girding up for battle. He picks up his shield. He picks up his staff. And both of them are accompanied by these huge Homeric uh, metaphors. His shield is enormous. It's as big as the moon almost. Um, his spear is like the... Uh, is far bigger than like the biggest mast that has ever been cut. Um, so look at this passage. This is page... Or this is line 283. He scarce had ceased when the superior fiend was moving toward the shore. His ponderous shield, ethereal temper, massy, large, and round behind him cast. The broad circumference hung on his shoulders like the moon whose orb through optic glass the Tuscan artist views at evening. Uh, the Tuscan artist is Galileo. Um, his spear to equal which the tallest pine hewn on Norwegian hills to be the mast of some great admiral were but a wand. Notice that Milton is describing these huge Homeric descriptions. Here is Satan's ginormous shield. Here is Satan's spear, which is so big that the tallest mast ever hewn by human hands is would be but a wand in comparison. Um, Satan's is just so much more powerful than any human engine ever devised. His weapons are so much greater than any human artifice ever produced. Keep that in mind, we will come back to it. And then Satan finally calls. Um, he calls out and all of the troops arise and start to arrive. Um, and there's a ton of them, many of which are famous figures in history and in the Bible and in literature, like there's a ton of Babylonian gods who show up like Ashtaroth and Astarte. Um, we get um, Baal, we get like all the, the evil figures in, in the Bible, but we also get the gods of the pagan worlds. So in line 478, he meant, or at line 476, he mentions after these appeared a crew who under names of old renown, Osiris, Isis, Horus, and their train with monstrous shapes and sorceries abused fanatic Egypt and her priests to seek their wandering gods disguised in brutish forms rather than human. Here we have the great Egyptian pantheon, all of the Egyptian deities, Osiris and Isis with their monstrous animal heads as Milton describes it. We also, a little later, get the Greek gods. So on around line 506, these were the prime in order and in might. The rest were long to tell, though far renowned. The Ionian gods of Javan's issue held. Gods yet confessed later than heaven and earth, their boasted parents. Titan, heaven's firstborn, with his enormous brood and birthright seized by younger Saturn. He from mightier Jove, his own and Rhea's son, like measure found, so Jove usurping reigned. Here we have all of the major figures in the great Greek pantheon. We have Saturn, Kronos, we have Jove, Zeus, we have Rhea's son, we have all the Titans and all of the gods of Olympus. And notice what Milton is casting them as. These are all devils. 
Milton is suggesting that all of the pagan gods and goddesses, all of the Egyptian gods and goddesses, all of the Greek gods and goddesses, he is emphasizing they are all demons. They are all devils. They are all troops in Satan's army. And notice that there's two effects here. On the one hand, by relegating all of these very important gods to this, like, really small position, like, he just lists them all one at a time without any regard, this is comparable to where he says that, you know, let the Holy Spirit guide him over the Aeonian Mount. The Olympian gods are just pawns in this game. Like, the greatest figures of Homer are now the smallest figures in this story. They're barely even worth mentioning. Um, on the other hand, notice that they are evil. They're on the bad side for Milton. They are devils. All of those great pagan accomplishments where Dante emphasizes that, you know, they're pretty good, like Socrates and, and Homer, they, they all get to hang out in like the weakest circle of hell where things are still pretty good and they've got the light of reason and they're not tormented. Notice that Milton instead emphasizes their wrongness. Dante emphasizes how close the pagans are to Christians. Milton emphasizes how far the pagans are from Christians. How the, all of their gods were actually devils deceiving them. How, you know, Egypt was abused by Osiris and Isis and the, the demons here. Um, they are tricked at best and sort of deluded at worst. Um, they are abused. They are turned to evil purposes. Milton is not apologizing for the pagans, nor is he saying that he admires them. As much as he is adopting heroic, Homeric heroic language here, he is doing it to describe the bad guys, the evil forces. And it's true. He will absolutely use Homeric metaphor to describe Satan again and again and again. Like Leviathan, he rises from the deep. His, his shield is as big as the moon. His spear is as big as the tallest tree ever cut down would be a wand to it. Um, but notice, Milton is using these metaphors ironically. He is using them spitefully. He is using them where they both best fit the army of the damned instead the metaphors that he uses to describe god later in the passage will take a very different form yes it'll still be epic metaphors but they'll be biblical metaphors instead in fact the biblical metaphor that he employs here the one to describe the army of satan like beckoning to satan's call is the metaphor of the locusts summoned by moses to cover the plains of egypt and notice how disrespectful that is by contrast. Like when Homer usually talks Homeric metaphor, he usually wants to emphasize the greatness of the army that he presents, how powerful it is, how their helms shine in the sunlight, how they, you know, come upon an enemy force like wolves, ravening, dangerous, feral beasts. Here they're locusts, they're bugs. They sweep over the land and they destroy human accomplishments and they eat all the food gluttonously and then they pass over and go do it again. That's what the devils are to them. And using this Homeric metaphor in this particular way allows Milton to degrade the Homeric metaphor, specifically reject it in contrast with the divine images that he's showing here. 
on some level, I suspect that what Milton is trying to drive home here is the fact that the pagan imagery used to sort of like bolster the forces of the rebels against um, the, the monarchy in the 17th century is wrong. It is propaganda. It is not properly used. You know, remember that like um, so many of the thinkers in the 16th and 17th century are borrowing Renaissance ideals, borrowing uh, uh, ideals from the Greeks and Romans, looking at the Greek democracy and the Roman Republic and saying that, that's what our government should be like. Milton is specifically going to the Greeks and Romans and saying these guys are full of shit. All of their gods are deceiving them. They were small potatoes in the divine plan. They are not worth emulating, and their language and their style is not admirable. It is best applied to devils, to evil forces, to demons in disguise. What's more, notice that even though he is sort of like degrading these forces, comparing them to locusts, he also emphasizes that they're still way greater than all human accomplishments. Um, so now look at lines 571. He says, And now his heart, meaning Satan's, distends with pride, and hardening in his strength, glories. Satan looks out over all of his troops, and he feels proud. He feels glory. For never since created man met such embodied force as, named with these, could merit more than that small infantry warred on by cranes. Milton is saying that compared to this huge demonstration of satanic power, all human armies are like the tiny, silly people in Homer who got beaten by birds. Like, that's how weak we would look in comparison. And he doubles down on this. Though all the giant brood of Phlegra with the heroic race were joined that fought at Thebes and Ilium, if you took all of the heroic forces from ancient Greek mythology, the armies at Thebes that warred over Thebes for like decades, the armies that fought over Troy for 10 years. If you took on theirs, all of them together and put them all in one army on each side, mixed with their auxiliary gods, if you added in Athena and Zeus and all of the gods who fought in those wars, as Homer records, and what resounds in fable or romance of Uther's son, begirt with British and Amoric knights, if you take all of the troops in the ancient Greek myths and add all of the Arthurian legends, all of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table and all of their armies, if you add all of those together and all who since baptized or infidel, jousted in Aspermont or Montalban, Damasco or Morocco or Trebizond, if you take all of the Islamic armies and all of the French armies and all of the British armies, every army that ever put to war in human history, if you took every single one of those people and all of their weapons and all of their gods and put them all together, they would still be dwarfed by Satan's army. Thus far these beyond compare of mortal prowess yet observe their dread commander. Notice the locusts army is so much more powerful than all of human warfare. All of human fighting is just a tiny little insignificant speck compared to what the armies of Satan are capable of. And remember, too, that they got thoroughly horsewhipped by God. The Almighty kicked them all out of heaven, forced them all down to hell, and now they're stuck here. This is the defeated army, and they are so much better 
so much more powerful, so much more glorious, so much stronger than anything humans have ever put together. Even if you took all of the things that humans have ever put together, combined them, it would still just not even compare. Milton is frequently in this text de-emphasizing human greatness here. He is specifically stressing these details, the distance in scope between human achievements and demonic achievements in the light of how little demonic achievements mean compared to God. So when Satan finally gets, at, gets ready to talk, we have another strange sort of moment here. Um, so we've gotten all of the troops together. He is ready to deliver this speech. And notice, he can't. Um, so line 615, he now prepared to speak, whereat their doubled ranks they bend from wing to wing, and half enclose him round with all his peers, attention held, held them mute. Like Satan's gathered them all together, they know that he was going to deliver a speech, they're beaten, they're hurting, like they suffered from falling from heaven, but they're ready to make a counterattack, and everyone goes silent. Let Satan talk. Thrice he essayed, thrice he tried to talk. And thrice, in spite of scorn, tears, such as angels weep, burst forth. At last, words interwove with sighs found out their way. Satan can't speak. Three times he tries to, three times he weeps instead. Now, you can read this in one of two ways. Either this is the same reason that Dante's Satan was weeping, and Satan suddenly realizes that he has no chance, more likely, in the context of the text, he's looking at the armies and weeping at their power, at their glory. Like, Satan is profoundly moved by this. And yet, it's unclear. Satan needs a moment, in short. And notice that leading up to this is this emphasis by Milton that this is withered glory. So it says, dark and so yet shone above them all the archangel. Satan is glorious above his army, but his face Deep scars of thunder had entrenched, and care sat on his faded cheek. But under brows of dauntless courage and considerate pride, waiting revenge, cruel his eye, but cast signs of remorse and passion. To behold the fellows of his crime, the followers rather, far once other beheld in bliss, condemned forever now to have their lot in pain. Millions of spirits for his fault, immersed of heaven, cast out of heaven, at the mercy of heaven, and from eternal splendors flung for his revolt. Yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered, as when heaven's fire hath scathed the forest oaks or mountain pines with singed top their stately growth, though bare stands on the blasted heath. He looks out, and he realizes they are all fucked, and it is his fault. He brought all of his friends, all of his loyal advisors, and they're here, ready to be loyal again, and he screwed them over. Heaven destroyed them because of his revolt. And notice the image here, when heaven's fire scathed the forest oaks, like when lightning strikes a forest and it bursts into flame, they are wounded, they are singed, they are burned by the fires of hell, standing on the blasted teeth. Now he prepares to speak and can't. This realization that they are here for him, it could be he weeps from their loyalty. It also is likely that he is weeping because they are screwed on his behalf. 
These were his friends and he damned them. And Satan knows this. As much as Satan is engaged in this like elaborate game of self-denial, as we saw earlier in his conversation with Beelzebub, as much as he is convinced he is going to make heaven of hell or heaven of heaven or hell of heaven, he is going to like assume to himself that it is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Here, it seems he loses his composure. Here, he realizes the gravity of what he has done. And maybe again, it is positive. You can read it in either light. That one I'll grant. But at the very least, Milton is opening that possibility. And notice what he says. O myriads of immortal spirits, O powers matchless, but with the Almighty. O all of you soldiers, all of you who are so much more powerful than anything that has ever existed, except God. And that strife was not inglorious, though the event was dire. It was a glorious battle, Satan insists, even though we lost. At this place testifies in this dire change hateful to utter. It sucks here. But what power of mind foreseeing or presaging from the depth of knowledge past or present could have feared how such united force of gods, how such as stood like these could ever know repulse? How could we have known that we would be defeated? Well, Obviously, Beelzebub already pointed it out because God is likely almighty. Admittedly, we didn't know that going in, but really, was there doubt? For who can be yet believe, Satan says, though after loss, that all these puissant legions whose exile hath emptied heaven shall fail to reascend self-raised and repossess their native seat? We have to win. Look at us. We're so awesome, Satan says. Even though it was just a little while that Beelzebub said maybe God is just slaving us here maybe we are just here to serve his purposes for me be witness all the host of heaven it counsels different or danger shunned by me have lost our hopes but he who reigns monarch in heaven till then is one secure sat on his throne upheld by old repute consent or custom and his regal state put forth at full but still his strength concealed which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall god tricked us satan says God held back his power so we would attack him, and then he let us loose. It was his fault, Satan stresses, not ours. He was only in power because of, you know, custom, consent. We all just assumed he was, you know, supposed to be in power. He isn't rightfully in power. He just, we all thought he was. But at the same time, he says, yet he was so powerful that he kicked our butts. Notice the hypocrisy in this line. On the one hand, God doesn't deserve to rule. It was just consent or custom. But at the same time, his power was concealed. He hid it from us. So was God in fact obeyed because it was just custom? Or was he obeyed because he was in fact powerful enough to warrant it? Satan doesn't acknowledge that this is a problem. Henceforth his might we know and know our own, he continues, so as not either to provoke or dread new war provoked. Our better part remains to work in close design by fraud or guile, what force affected not. We are going to trick him. We're going to work secretly. We're going to work stealthily. We are going to lie, cheat, and steal our way to heaven, Satan tells us. Presumably because God, according to this mad logic, did the same, even though that doesn't make sense.
that he no less at length from us may find who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. Space may produce new worlds, whereof so rife there went a fame in heaven that he ere long intended to create, and therein plant a generation whom his choice regard should favor equal to the sons of heaven. Thither, if but to pry, shall be perhaps our first eruption. Thither, or elsewhere, for this infernal pit shall never hold celestial spirits in bondage, nor the abyss long under darkness cover. But these thoughts full counsel must mature. Peace is despaired, for who can think so mission war then war open or understood must be resolved satan's plan is to hit the newcomers notice that there was a rumor floating around heaven he mentions this that there's going to be a new generation one that is regarded as well or better than the sons of heaven he's talking about humanity humanity on their new planet we will attack there satan says that will be our first eruption or maybe elsewhere if we need to change it because you know who knows like their plans are not set in stone but all that he wants to emphasize is peace is despaired who can think submission war then war open or understood must be resolved we have no choice he concludes we must have war and this first action that you see following this, after this big inspirational and 90% bullshit speech, is everybody builds a fortress. And once again, Milton turns on the epic Homeric comparisons and also those descriptions that contrast human accomplishment versus demonic accomplishment. So he spake, and to confirm his words, out flew millions of flaming swords drawn from the thighs of mighty cherubim, the sudden blaze far round illumined hell. Highly they raged against the highest, and fierce with grasped arms clashed on their sounding shields the din of war, hurling defiance toward the vault of heaven. He's worked them up to this fever pitch, and they're all fighting and ready to go and shouting and banging their shields together. There stood a hill not far, whose grisly top belched fire and rolling smoke. The rest entire shone with a glossy scurf, undoubtedly sign that in his womb was hid metallic ore the work of sulfur they look and there's a mountain and on the mountain there's this glint on the side of it that shows that there's clearly metals hidden in the mountain thither winged with speed a numerous brigade hastened as with bands of pioneers with spade and pickaxe armed forerun the royal camp to trench a field or cast a rampart all the demons fly over there and start picking start like spading and pickaxing at the mountain to get at the stuff inside mammon led them on mammon the least erected spirit that fell from heaven for even in heaven his looks and thoughts were always downward bent admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement trodden gold than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beatific the leader of this charge toward the mountain is mammon and mammon is usually described in the bible as being wealth Mammon is always obsessed with wealth, and it's kind of unclear frequently whether Mammon actually, like, is wealth, or if he's, like, a demon associated with wealth, or if he is, like, the Babylonian god. It, it's frequently conflated in the Christian thinking. So here we have Mammon depicted. Mammon, who, even when he was in heaven, didn't look around at all the divine things around him, the gods, the angels, you know, all of the, like, great souls and holy things, but instead was looking at the dirt, because remember, in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. Mammon is obsessed with gold. But notice how disregarded it is in heaven. It's the stuff they pave the streets with. It's roughly as valuable as asphalt is to us. By him first, 
Milton describes, men also, and by his suggestion taught, ransacked the center and with impious hands rifled the bowels of their mother earth for treasures better hid. It's mammon, Milton describes, who taught men to dig for precious metals. It is by mammon's instruction that we ransacked earth, mother earth, for treasures better hid. Um, notice that this is not terribly positive. And it gets worse. Um, soon had his crew, Mammon's demons, opened into the hill a spacious wound and digged out ribs of gold. There wasn't just metal in the hill, there was gold. Whole ribs of it. Huge, like, swaths of gold. More than we've ever seen on Earth. And yet Milton cautions us, Let none admire that riches grow in hell. That soil may best deserve the precious bane. Milton stresses that the riches that we see on earth, the gold that everyone covets and wants for themselves, best belong to hell. It is a precious bane, he says. It is valuable and yet it destroys us. It hurts us every bit as much as a poison does. Let none admire that there is gold in hell. Let none wish for the gold that is in hell. Instead, note that hell is where gold belongs. Hell is always where gold belongs. Gold is perilous and dangerous. It leads us to horrible activities. Therefore, Milton says, let it stay in hell. Of course there is gold in hell. And here let those who boast in mortal things, Milton goes on, and wondering tell of Babel and the works of Memphian kings, learn how their greatest monuments of fame and strength and art are easily outdone by spirits reprobate. And in an hour... What in an age they with incessant toil and hands innumerable scarce perform. In an hour the demons create Pandemonium, the great fortress of hell, and it far outstrips all of the great monuments, all of the great accomplishments, all the wonders of the world that humans have accomplished. The works of Babel, the great tower in the Old Testament, the Memphian kings, all the Egyptian pyramids and all of the Egyptian monuments, they all are pale in comparison to what devils create in an hour. Not Babylon nor great Alcairo such magnificence equaled in all their glories to enshrine Belus or Serapis, their gods, or seat their kings when Egypt and when Assyria strove in wealth and luxury. The ascending pile stood fixed her stately height and straight the doors, opening their brazen folds, discover wide within her ample spaces over the smooth and level pavement. Pandemonia could devour all of the monuments built by the Babylonian kings, by the Egyptian kings, by the Greeks, by the Romans, and by anything modern. All of that, again, pales in comparison. And notice what Milton is stressing here. All the human armies in the world combined together through all of history pale in comparison to the demonic horde mustered at Satan's beck and call. All of human wealth, all of what we have valued as far as precious metals and precious stones, best belongs in hell, a precious bane. And all of the works of human ingenuity, all of the works of human accomplishment, all of the great monuments, all of the great like temples and citadels and pyramids and so on, all pale in comparison to what the demons create in an hour when they make pandemonium. Milton is stressing that human accomplishment, human triumph is bullshit. It is worthless. It is a dime a dozen compared to what these demons can do almost instantly compared to what God can do by dis utterly destroying the demons entirely. 
The streets are paved with the same gold we treasure in heaven. It is so worthless as to be beneath consideration. Milton is saying that all of the reasons why we fight, all of the combats we fought, and all of the armies we must have to fight them are worthless. Milton is instead drawing a very clear picture of the organization of the world. God is at the top, and he deserves to be at the top. He has the power. He has the justice. He is right to be there. Satan rebelled against God pointlessly, and he is trying to justify feebly what he has done in hell afterwards, even though there is no justification. Satan is saying, you know, I am unconquered. I will refuse to, to lick boots of a tyrant, which, you know, we take as being a rousing cry because of how many tyrants we've actually had to fight and how much we support the underdogs who fight them, how much we distrust those power structures. But that all assumes an unjust power structure. Milton does not. Milton assumes a just one. Milton assumes that God is right and that the kingship is the appropriate inheritance of God, the the just representative of God on earth. The rebels of his day are being compared not favorably to Satan and his tyrants, but unfavorably. Satan was the original rebel, and Satan was drastically outclassed. The only way that he can maintain his combative spirit is to lie to himself, to lie to his army, and to ignore the fact that everything that he is doing is evil and wrong. That's what he's saying about the rebels in his own time as well. They are, have a whole bunch of great rhetoric. They can quote all those you know, politicians from ancient Greece and Rome, and they can talk about ancient Greece, Greece and Rome and their, their you know, models. But remember, ancient Greece and Rome are also bullshit in this. They are also pagan industries that don't even come close to what the devils can do, much less God. The rhetoric that is being employed here is wrong. It is a lie. Every, you know, leader who stood up against the king and said, you know, we should overthrow him, we refuse to accept his tyranny, is being compared to Satan doing the same thing. Being compared to people who are self-deceptive. Milton is carefully characterizing the revolutionary spirit here as a lie, as nothing more than empty rhetoric, and all for the sake of wealth and power and military force that is not worth having. All of these human accomplishments Milton is stressing are empty. Instead, we should be turning our eyes to God, and if this king, bad as he might be, is God's representative that is still way better than anything that humans left to their own devices are going to come up with. By far. Like humans and their own devices will come up with trash compared to demons who are trash compared to God. That's the proper organization of things. And I think that's what Milton is emphasizing here. So let's take a step back. Notice how I presented the case here. Notice that you, there are multiple sides to how what this book can be read. Like, you could just as easily make a case against me, that Milton is in fact supporting the revolutionaries, that this is the subversive work of literature that poses Satan as a hero, and, you know, he's successfully overcoming, you know, great obstacles, and that, you know, the defiance of the human spirit is an admirable quality. Many have. 
Like, I definitely picked my quotes fairly carefully, but I did use enough of the other stuff that you can see holes in my argument. When you write your papers, I want to see something similar. I want to see you picking out quotes that support what you have to say. Just like I picked out all of those quotes where Milton is stressing, you know, Satan is only able to lift his head at God's will. Or the fact that all of the armies of Satan are compared to locusts later in the, in the passage. Those are important passages that stress what I suspect Milton means when he is putting this all together. How Milton is ultimately against the rebels, not against the king. But you could pick different passages and make a different point. Notice how I use different examples to present my argument, how I stress the difference between the pagans and the Christians, how like Milton wants to overcome all pagan accomplishments because God is so much greater than they are. And thus I also drew that parallel between, you know, the royalists on the one hand being representatives of God and the, the uh, parliamentarians on the other hand being representatives of the pagans. Note how I use that comparison also to draw this line between the various factions here in both the book and in the historical uh, events that Milton is likely inspired by. That's what I'm looking for. Use specific details. Talk about how they relate to the events going on around the writer in the writer's own time, the big political changes, the big historical changes, even the artistic changes to some degree. That's what I'm looking for when I'm saying, you know, locate the text in its time. And that's very much the goal of this class. Assignment after assignment, I will expect you to do that. So use the stuff we talked about in the lecture, like use the PowerPoint presentation, the details there, the history, the music, the art movements, all of that. Use the text. Go deep, digging deeply for passages that support one position or another, that support you or that oppose your opponents. That's what I'm looking for. That's what we're ultimately out to do here. Make an argument that shows how, what the author is saying about the author's own time. Make, and in the later passages, especially with like the, the research paper where you're contrasting two different works, show how that differs. You know, Milton is writing his Satan as a compelling villain, as this he is interested in the psychology of what Satan is going through because he's interested in the psychology of what the revolutionaries are going through. Contrast that with Dante. Dante doesn't need to get into the psychology of Satan. Like Dante just portrays Satan as crying because that's the theology that Dante is working with. Milton is playing a very tricky game here depicting what Satan is thinking contrasted with what Christian theology teaches and how those two connect and disconnect. Um, so keep that in mind. The choices that Milton is making here in Paradise Lost reflect what Milton is experiencing historically in his own life, experientially, and the artistic priorities of the time. This is a very Baroque-like approach towards literature, contrasted with Dante, who is much more systematic and medieval. Um, all of that is relevant here. All of that is stuff that you should be thinking about as you're writing about these works. So in the coming weeks, we're going to have our first response paper. Don't feel obligated to go into like that much detail. It's only a one-page assignment. But think about these things. 
think about the context. Think about what these writers are doing in their own time. What are they actually writing about besides gods and devils and Don Juans and their various conquests? That's very much what this class is all about. So again, if you have any questions, shoot them my way. For next time, we are reading Moliere's Don Juan. It's not the first Don Juan story, but it is a good one. And it is hilarious if you can, you know, figure out everything that Moliere is doing. Um, so it should be fun to talk through. Um, so read that. And again, keep in mind, this is written in the 17th century in France. Moliere is thinking of Louis XIV and of his absolute monarchy in the same way that Milton is thinking of his big English revolutions. Um, so see if that informs the way that you read and understand what Moliere has to say. Um, happy reading, and we will talk about it soon.